You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. Those stories in a moment, but we begin with the breaking news. Crews on scene of a house fire in Vancouver. One person has been injured and the fire is causing a traffic disruption along a busy thoroughfare. Sarah McDonald is live near the scene for us tonight. Sarah, that uh, fire and the fighting of that fire has been affecting traffic northbound along a, a quite a stretch of Cami, a very normally busy stretch. That's right, Sophia. Major artery in central Vancouver. And just moments before we went to air tonight, uh, both directions of Canby Street, northbound and southbound, have now reopened to traffic. But you can bet there is going to be some residual backup tonight during the evening rush. An eight-block stretch of Canby Street has been closed for almost three hours at this point. This is 37th and Canby, or the 5300 block of Canby Street in central Vancouver. A two-alarm structure fire broke out just after 3 o'clock this afternoon, leaving seven people displaced and one person hospitalized. Crews now have that fire under control. They are on scene monitoring hotspots, but the efforts to contain it caused a major headache for commuters all afternoon. An eight-block stretch of this major artery was completely closed down for nearly three hours, as I said, opening just a few moments ago. Fire officials acknowledge this was likely a headache for a lot of drivers today, but they say this closure was necessary for everybody's safety. We certainly appreciate we all commute and we don't like closing roads, but we had, this is a second alarm, we had multiple apparatus, we had hose lines deployed across the northbound lanes, and we had staff crossing into the southbound lanes. So both for motorist safety and our own safety, we had to temporarily close it. Now, as for that person that was hospitalized, fire officials not elaborating on their condition, but they do tell us that individual was conscious when they were transported to hospital. All seven people making it outside of the home. Fire officials telling us tonight the damage was extensive, but it could have been worse. No surrounding structures were impacted. All right. Well, some good news at least. Thanks for that. Sarah McDonald reporting on Camby. All right, now to that snow falling on the south coast. You saw it in Sarah's live shot, and it's having an impact on commuters. The morning rush dodged a bit of a bullet, but right now, the evening drive is taking a hit as expected. Grace Key is live in Coquitlam, and Grace, snowfall amounts have varied significantly across Metro Vancouver, but what's been the act, uh, impact that you've seen? Well, here in Coquitlam, where we're standing, just with Highway 1 behind me, you can see traffic is moving slow, uh, smoothly. And at this hour, it's just seeing some light rain coming down, but certainly a difference from what we saw earlier this morning. Yeah, isn't this fun? In February. With another blast of snow overnight, this is what people woke up to before heading out to work. We usually get snow later, so... But I think I've had enough now. The conditions weren't as bad in some areas compared with what we saw during the last big snowfall. In Vancouver, city crews were working on priority routes. Uh, we don't have accumulations on our priority routes right now, so we're not doing any plowing. Um, but we are laying salt down to uh, help prevent that ice buildup. On the Portman and Alex Fraser bridges, lane closures caused some delays for drivers during the afternoon peak travel period as crews began cable collar drops to clear minor accumulations. 
As for transit, there were some minor delays and longer wait times during the morning rush hour. They're advising passengers to check transit alerts, especially on the commute back home. I think this afternoon is where our focus is now shifted to. Uh, obviously, if we get some snowfall accumulation during the day, and there is quite a bit predicted, uh, that could cause some difficulties on some of the roads in particular. The winter weather and low visibility caused some delays for people traveling in and out of YVR. Passengers are being reminded to check their flights before leaving home. My commute was good. Came from Vancouver on the South Shore. It wasn't bad. A little slippery, but you know, ABS kicked in. It was nice. Some students got the day off. While UBC remained open, SFU cancelled classes at its campuses in Surrey, Burnaby and Vancouver and all BCIT campuses closed at 12.30, cancelling classes and exams for the remainder of the day. With temperatures hovering around one degree in Vancouver, it was apparently warm enough to salt the sidewalk in a kilt and sandals. The snow's nothing new to me. So as for those campus closures that we did talk about, the uh, post-secondary schools are just advising students and staff just to check the websites for any possible alerts tomorrow morning. All right, thanks for that, Grace Key reporting tonight. Uh, meteorologist Christy Gordon is tracking the snow. Christy, what do we need to know about the next few hours? Sophie, we've been very lucky with temperatures hovering just around one degree. So accumulations on the sides of the roads, but not on the main roads themselves. As you saw, uh, we are going to continue with one degree in many areas. But just in the last hour in Surrey, we've had a drop to zero and out through the Fraser Valley as well. So we're not completely in the clear just yet. The areas I'm concerned about over the next little while are out through the Surrey area, higher elevation areas like Westwood Plateau, SFU, the usual suspects, as well as higher elevations of the North Shore and in particular out through the Fraser Valley, mainly east of Abbotsford. That's where we still could see significant accumulations in the next few hours. Now, we are going to see a gradual warm-up this evening across all areas. When I come back, I'll show you exactly when that will happen and whether it will wash the snow away. All right, thanks for that, Christy. The young man on trial for a brutal double murder in Vancouver back in 2017 was on the witness stand again today under cross-examination by the Crown. And a warning again, some of the details of this case are disturbing. The Crown grilled Rocky Rambo Wayne Nam Cam about why he killed Richard Jones and his wife Diana Ma Jones and questioning whether his own family problems played a role. The accused was in the victim's home for two hours and 23 minutes. 64-year-old Diana Ma Jones fought for her life after Rocky Rambo Wayne M. Cam forced his way in with a hatchet in one hand, a pocket knife in the other. She was screaming for help, the accused told the court. Before Ma Jones's throat was slit, she scratched Cam on the face, resulting in a crucial piece of evidence. Rocky, it's over. <sighs> Don't forget, that's just part of the DNA. That's just the emergency DNA that we had. There are pools of blood outside that house trailing now. We have to analyze all that, yeah. But your DNA is underneath her fingernails. Crown questioning Cam about a possible motive, asking why Ma Jones? Was it because she was elderly, Chinese? Did she remind you of your mother, who you loathe? Cam disagreed. 
Crown suggesting to Cam he was taking his time, taking pleasure from inflicting pain and suffering on 68-year-old Richard Jones, who used a walker. Cam's response, I don't think so. Jones suffered more than 100 stab wounds. But at least say you're sorry. For what? For what? You're an animal. Crown attempting to dismantle Cam's credibility, saying he lied to the police interrogator and he threw out his bloody shoes and clothes to destroy evidence. It wasn't like a video game, said Crown. Defense says Cam suffered from a mental disorder and he thought he was in a video game when he stabbed the couple. Cam testified he remembered killing Ma Jones and her husband, but he said he's not immoral, so he doesn't understand how he didn't feel anything if he did it. Romina Dea, Global News. Well, after days of searching, RCMP on Vancouver Island say the body of a third man missing near Souk has been found. Corey Mills, Eric Blackmore and Anthony A.J. Jensen, all 20 years old, were last seen in a blue pickup on Friday. The truck was eventually found in the Souk River and RCMP found the bodies of two of the missing men later the same day. At this point, police don't believe the deaths are suspicious. The B.C. Coroner Service is also investigating to determine how, when... They died. A suspicious package in Hope triggered a temporary shutdown of the RCMP detachment there. Police say a man showed up with a World War II ammunition container that was found inside a storage locker and it was wrapped in layers of plastic and packing tape. Not knowing what was inside, police immediately evacuated the building as a precaution. The RCMP explosive disposal unit was called in to determine the contents of the package and they discovered it was actually a battery dating back to the Second World War. The last legal hurdle facing the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion has now been cleared. The Federal Court of Appeal today dismissed a challenge launched by four B.C. First Nations over the government approval of the project. It's an important victory for those who want to see the pipeline built, but as Nadia Stewart reports, despite today's ruling, First Nations say they'll fight on. The four B.C. First Nations fighting the Trans Mountain Pipeline say the Federal Court of Appeals' dismissal of their challenge is disappointing, but not surprising. This decision today is, is reckless in the sense that it, it clearly wants Indigenous peoples to remain as Canada's Indians. When we have Aboriginal law, we have Indigenous law. And for the Court of Appeals not to consider the evidence is reckless. There's nations along the pipeline that are going to suffer. The water along the pipeline are going to suffer. In their decision, the three judges reviewing the case said Cabinet's second round of consultations with Indigenous communities was thorough, unlike the first round, which was successfully challenged by Tsleil-Waututh Nation in court. But in a summary of Tuesday's decision, the judges said, while the parties challenging Cabinet's decision are fully entitled to oppose the project, reconciliation and the duty to consult do not provide them with a veto over projects such as this one. Obviously, we're pleased to see that the consultations we had with Indigenous peoples were, uh, were looked at to be robust. Ottawa reiterating the project is in Canada's best interest, a sentiment echoed by Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, who adds there are more First Nations in favour of the project than there are opposed. The decision today said 129 First Nations groups were consulted and at least 120 were in favour or not opposed. 
That's the number we should keep our eye fixed on. In a statement, Trans Mountain President and CEO Ian Anderson said they're pleased to be able to continue moving forward with the project, when the BCNDP government describes as risky and dangerous. We're going to continue to urge the federal government to take every possible step to protect against the consequences of a catastrophic spill should it happen. The feds say they expect more hurdles and experts say they will likely take the form of protests, which will hardly go unnoticed. I envision that we are headed for a significant uh, conflict around civil disobedience. As for their next step, First Nations leaders vow to exhaust every legal option, including challenging this decision in Supreme Court. At East York Global News. Okay, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on what this decision means. Keith, it's pretty clear from the court's ruling First Nations do not have a veto over these things. So what's the implication for future projects? Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see the impact of this ruling on other disputes, notably the coastal gas link dispute we've been covering uh, with our reporter Sarah McDonald up in the northwest corner of B.C., that natural gas pipeline to Kitimat. This is a sweeping ruling. It rejects First Nations arguments at every level here, and it has implications for other, dis other disputes. 89 pages, shooting down arguments all over the place. Now, first of all, as uh, Nadia mentioned in her uh, story, the, one of the chief takeaways from here, it's making it clear no veto powers exist for First Nations over projects. The judge is going out of their way to mention that at least four or five times. Consultation and accommodation is a give-and-take process, which means it doesn't run one way. Uh, both sides have to give a little. Uh, uh, reconciliation and consultation also do not dictate any outcomes. It doesn't mean that one side is always going to win in every case. They're starting to set the rules, I think, for other projects. And notably, I took one quote out of here. Indigenous groups should not take... Uh, Unreasonable, uh, unreasonable positions to thwart government from making decisions on cases where, despite uh, reasonable consultation, agreement is not reached. That, I think, could apply to what's going on up in the Northwest, where you've got a majority of First Nations supporting that pipeline, a tiny minority uh, opposed to it. This court case could have ramifications that favor the proponents of that pipeline, Chris. All right. Keith Baldry and Victoria, thanks, Keith. Right now, though, as of today, more than 29,600 cases of the novel coronavirus have been confirmed worldwide. The number of dead has grown to 490. Now, most cases are in China, but at least 24 other countries, including Canada, are also affected. Hong Kong reported its first death from the virus, a 39-year-old man who'd recently traveled to Wuhan, China. That was the second death recorded outside mainland China. The first was in the Philippines on Sunday. BC now has its second case of novel coronavirus, making it the fifth case in Canada so far. The province's top doctor confirming a woman in her 50s tested positive and lives in the Vancouver Coastal Health Region. Linda Ellsworth has the details. There is a coronavirus briefing every Tuesday in BC, whether there's anything new to report or not. Today there was. One of the first things I need to update you on is that um, we have identified a second case of someone who has tested positive for coronavirus. The patient, a woman in her 50s living in the Vancouver Coastal Health Region. She was, uh, became ill a few days ago and was assessed in hospital and the testing came back positive once again late last night. She was most probably infected by family members who are visiting from Wuhan. They left Wuhan um, before the travel restrictions were put in place, but they were also very conscious of the outbreak and were minimizing their contact with people outside the home. 
While she recovers at home, a group of as many as 250 Canadians, having passed several health inspections, will be repatriated on Wednesday or Thursday. On their way to the Canadian Forces base in Trenton, where they'll be quarantined for two weeks, they'll stop over in Vancouver for refueling. The only people that would be medevaced off the flight here in, in, uh, in B.C. would be somebody who needs urgent medical care, either for coronavirus or more likely for some other medical condition that they needed assistance with. So we have plans for how to manage that. Dr. Henry says a second confirmed case in B.C. was not unexpected, that it shows the system is succeeding in finding and assessing cases. But she warns that we all have a role to play in containing the new virus. So there are many reasons why we all need to be extra vigilant, particularly in these next few weeks when we're going to get a better sense of, of whether we're able to contain this virus. So cover your mouth with your elbow when you cough, wash your hands regularly, and if you're sick, stay home. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. The Vancouver Taxi Association has taken ride-sharing to B.C. Supreme Court, trying once again to shut it down. The cab companies that make up the association call the B.C. government's approval of ride-sharing unlawful and say they're losing out on big business. Ted Chernecki has reaction. Nothing like a snow day to lift the spirits of a cab driver these days. Weather like this will ramp up a level of demand not seen in 10 days, not since ride-sharing started. This according to some of the drivers in court today. About 30%. Down 30%? Yeah. Walking out of Yellow Cab yesterday at quarter to five, I had no calls waiting on the phones. So the business has dropped for these fellows. Lower mainland taxi companies are asking the courts to stop ride-sharing until a more robust court hearing later this year. At that time, the industry will argue that the Passenger Transportation Board erred in allowing ride-sharing by creating an uneven playing field. We are not saying no to ride-share. We can coexist with ride-share, but it has to be fair. 2,500 taxis, 2,500 Uber cars. The taxi industry argued in court that companies like Uber and Lyft are predatory and that they undercut pricing to eliminate competition in the hopes to profit later. Both are losing billions of dollars. But for passengers, they're just happy to get a ride. Any taxi companies aren't able to meet the demands of the people, so they should be allowing Uber to come in. Cab drivers say they cannot afford to wait until late March or April for that full judicial review court date. If early results are accurate and business really is and stays down by 30%, for some drivers the review may be too late. A decision on today's application to stop ride-sharing is expected Thursday morning. Ted Chernacki, Global News. The latest real estate figures for Greater Vancouver show while the market is still off from the red-hot highs of three years ago, it is starting to pick up again. According to the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, the number of home sales last month was around 7% below the 10-year average for the month of January. But sales were still 42% above the figure recorded for that same month last year. Industry experts say that 2020 has started with steady demand. They're predicting a more active spring market. The benchmark price for all residential real estate in January was around $1 million. Well, the latest results from the first contest between Democratic presidential hopefuls, the Iowa caucuses, are in. At this point, Pete Buttigieg is in the lead with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in second and third, and former Vice President Joe Biden in fourth.
Of course, the complete results should have been finalized last night, but a technical glitch left Iowa voters and Democrat hopefuls in the dark. We have been working day and night to make sure that these results are accurate. But a day later, the data is still unclear. The Iowa Democratic Party releasing just a sampling of the votes from just over 60% of the precincts. The reporting of the results and circumstances surrounding the 2020 Iowa Democratic uh, Party caucuses were unacceptable. According to officials, the app that was supposed to transmit results didn't work properly, forcing them to count the votes by hand. The people of Iowa have done their duty, and unfortunately, I, I think the Democratic Party here in Iowa has been negligent in not getting us timely results. We had a bumpy start. Frustrated Democratic presidential hopefuls hit the ground in New Hampshire confident with their showing in Iowa. We wanted to see those results last night so that we could address our supporters with a firm official count in hand. The political world now questioning the process. It's an antiquated system. And its future. We may be witnessing the last Iowa caucuses. This isn't the first time the caucus has come under scrutiny. In 2016, both Clinton and Sanders flagged issues. And in 2012, it was the GOP that ruffled feathers with Mitt Romney, who won by a mere eight votes. It's hard to argue when you look at the last three cycles that something fundamentally is not going to need to change. Still, many Iowa voters say it shouldn't be scrapped. There's a lot of value in this process and the conversations um, that we have. What we're getting right now from the caucuses is a lot of confusion, frustration, and many believe a bump for the man the Democrats are trying to replace. Jay Gray, NBC News, Des Moines. Now, some shocking video out of Ohio, and we'll tell you right off the top that remarkably, no one was seriously hurt. Security video shows a school bus traveling down a rural road, going into a ditch and flipping onto its side, sliding down the road a few feet before coming to a stop. Cell phone video shows people running to help. Only two of the 13 students on the bus suffered minor injuries. The driver was also unhurt. Police are investigating. Almost three years after announcing that she'd gone into remission, Shannon Doherty has revealed her breast cancer has returned. The Beverly Hills 90210 actor tells ABC News she now has stage four breast cancer. The 48-year-old star announced in 2017 she was in remission for breast cancer that had been initially diagnosed in 2015. Doherty says she's been battling the cancer for the last year, even while continuing to work on the Beverly Hills reboot. I have to tell you something today that I wish I didn't have to tell you. Doherty's announcement comes a day after controversial conservative radio host Rush Limbaugh told his listeners that he has advanced lung cancer. The 69-year-old says his only symptom is shortness of breath, and he says he'll continue to do his show during his treatment if he's able. For the first time in nearly a half century, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is hearing calls for testing on cosmetics and talcum powder for asbestos. Katie Beck has more. There's no concealing the newest trend in the cosmetic industry. Clean beauty, demand for natural products without the chemicals, now a concern for industry regulators. We believe that testing methods for asbestos in these products are of the utmost importance. The FDA, for the first time in 50 years, considering testing for asbestos in cosmetics and talc powders. 
This after trace amounts of the known carcinogen showed up in the FDA testing of Johnson & Johnson's baby powder, which the company disputes. Trace asbestos also found in makeup no longer sold by the chain store Claire's after issuing two recalls. The beauty industry has been built on secrets. Greg Renfrew, founder of Beauty Counter, a clean cosmetics line, is also an advocate for regulation and transparency. The beauty industry is basically a self-governed industry that allows companies to make claims on products. They can say that they're natural or safe or pure when they may or may not be that way. Experts say mineral particles found in talc products are small enough to be inhaled, and even trace amounts of asbestos could be dangerous. In a statement, Johnson & Johnson supports the FDA review and says a range of independent laboratories have found their talc safe and asbestos-free. We look forward to a thorough review of the most effective and reliable ways to test for asbestos in cosmetic talc. A call for the government to ensure the beauty industry is keeping a clean complexion. Katie Beck, NBC News. A new report from the B.C. Seniors Advocate is raising concerns about how for-profit residential care homes are looking after seniors. As Richard Zussman reports, the findings show some seniors are getting shortchanged while operators are pocketing the profits. Taxpayers fund beds in care homes in this province to the tune of $1.3 billion. Now, B.C. Seniors Advocate is calling for more accountability on how that money is spent. We need to standardize reporting for all care homes throughout B.C. Same information, same calculations, same measurements. This report, released on Tuesday, found care homes aren't providing an equal amount of care for seniors. Mackenzie is calling on the health authorities and by extension the health minister to tighten financial financial oversight and create a more transparent system. What we've heard here comes from uh, prior to my time as Minister of Health that we'll continue to do better. More than 27,000 seniors in the province live in one of 300 residential care homes. Advocates are concerned about the growing service gap. I mean, we've got a tsunami of, um, of seniors coming and I think we've got to get this right uh, because there are a lot of seniors that are suffering unnecessarily because of uh, some of these gaps that uh, she's trying to fix right now. The report found that for-profit providers made 12 times more than their non-for-profit counterparts. It also found that those in non-profits made less and there was 20,000 hours of work paid for by the taxpayer and not provided. Lose let the market deal with it. It, we, we know now it doesn't do that very well. At least the people that require the care are falling between the cracks. The BC care providers representing the for-profit care homes say it isn't so simple. Many of the statistics are already taken out of context. Uh, they're they're uh, inflated. They're making things look in a, in a picture, uh, of trying to paint a picture of the sector that we don't think is actually that accurate. But those working in the homes, many members of the Hospital Employees Union, says it's the residents who are suffering. The seniors bear the brunt of this in terms of the very real care uh, that is not provided. The province says it's still in the midst of reviewing the report. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Public access to a popular Vancouver Island walking trail is now under threat because some dog owners aren't paying attention to the signs. The owners are ignoring an order to leash up their pets while walking through a working farm. And it's putting the farmer's flock in danger. Brad McLeod reports. My wife's grandfather wanted people to be able to travel through this farm. 
the Sea Bluff Trail, a family gift to the district of Machosan. Inspired by the European tradition of the right to roam on private farmland, the family allowed permanent public access in 1988. But that choice has become costly. We're using lambs out, loose dogs, kill lambs. Please leash your dog and use twine if you need. And when dog owners are approached... It's the range from utter innocence and, oh, I'm very sorry, and then they leash their dog, to um, up yours. Henry says on average he is losing about five to eight of his Dorset sheep a year, some from cougars and bear, but most due to dogs. And it's biting into his bottom line. He loses about $350 a lamb. Even a scare can cause a ewe to miscarry. A dog even chases, let alone attacks, the ewes when they're lactating. With lambs afoot, it can put them off the milk. Unbelievable. I met a gentleman yesterday with an off-leash dog on this property, and he felt so entitled to have his dog off-leash, I could not believe it. Machosan Mayor John Rand says dogs are welcome on or off-leash in all district parks but they may consider banning them at Still Meadow Farm. It's a gift to be able to walk on this property. The mayor says it's probably time for the district to review all their park policies because urbanization is on their doorstep, but country courtesy is being left at the gate. Well, it's damn vexing, isn't it? I mean, it's so simple to solve. The mayor says closing the park will be a last resort. The family agrees. It gives us great joy to see people walking this beautiful trail. Keep using the trail, just leash your dog. Brad McLeod, Global News, Machosan. Seems simple, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, drivers in Berlin relying on Google Maps were seeing traffic jams where there weren't any. After the forecast, the artist responsible for the prank and how he did it. Right now, though, we're going to bring in Christy Gordon for another look at the forecast and the snow that's in the area. It's all around us. It's falling, but it's not really sticking. It's melting. Yes. Good, good. That's good. That is good. It meant for the uh, afternoon um, commute not being too bad, that's for sure. Hey, everyone, I want you to stick around. We've got sunshine in the forecast, and I can't wait to show you when it is. First, though, the great shot. Sylvester Law sending us this one. Uh, The Burnaby Fire Department training today despite that slushy, wet snow. Way to go, you guys. All right, so it is still slushy out there. We are still seeing snow falling. There are a number of areas that are still seen accumulations uh, side streets in Surrey for one and this image coming from Burnaby just right now thank you for look to Lorinda for that one uh, also we're concerned about the Fraser Valley mainly east of Abbotsford but also north of Abbotsford out towards Mission uh, the Agassiz area will still see accumulations and the Malahat as well we're seeing s- some snowfall it is very wet and slushy but nonetheless causing slippery conditions on the roads we are going to see a transition to rain but it will take a while to get there. So I expect by about midnight most areas will see rainfall all across the region and then we'll continue to warm up through to the morning hours. Rain likely washing that snowfall away. Tomorrow morning's commute not a concern. We'll see rainfall right up to Squamish but still likely snowfall in the Whistler area. Meanwhile all areas inland significant snow overnight tonight and mainly through the morning hours tomorrow. Another 5 to 10 centimeters expected for you and that's from Dees Lake right through south. You do have a risk of freezing rain in through Fort St. John. These areas here merit hope of soils transitioning to rain, but most areas stain as snowfall and we will see rain tomorrow. Five degrees, everyone. The problem is we'll see three days of rain. We do have some sunshine in store for us and it's going to land perfectly on the weekend, you guys. 
Excellent Good. timing. Good timing. Mm-hmm. Well done, Christy. Thank you. Well, with more and more people relying on Google Maps to check on traffic, a German artist decided to play a prank. Now, the app bases its information on the number of phones it detects on any given street and how fast they're moving. So Simon Weckert, who calls himself a digital artist, put 100 active cell phones in a little wagon and pulled it behind him. Google Maps picked up those signals, which then erroneously told drivers there were 100 tightly packed cars on streets, creating a virtual traffic jam on roads that were actually empty. He called his project hashtag Google Maps Hacks. I wish I had more time to do art (laughs) things. Like duct tape a banana to a a wall? That's right. See? All right, Squires here with sports. Will we be thinking about 2011? Uh, I, think I think that's kind of gone now. There's not many people left. From, no. Well, Zdeno Chera, of course, but uh, not many left. Tano, Edler. Uh, tonight's game in Boston is the one we knew would be the toughest of the Canucks five-game road trip. But they are not alone. Every team that goes to Boston has a tough time. The Bruins have only lost twice in regulation at home all year. It's also difficult because we know Boston is a team that doesn't mind putting opposing players' imprints into their boards. So for the Canucks to have won this game, they would have had to overcome a lot. Now, they've done that a lot this season since just before Christmas, but tonight, no. Not this time for Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser, and the Canucks. In fact, Pettersson is one of those guys who gets imprinted into the boards. But he's okay. All right. First goal of the game, the Bruins, Charlie Coyle. Gets the rebound, makes the move, beats Markstrom 1-0. I'll tell you, if it wasn't for Markstrom, this game would have been a whole lot worse on the scoreboard. Giveaway on a Canucks power play, saved by Markstrom. Other end, Tuka Rask has to face down Bo Horvat. And he does just that. In fact, no Canuck was able to beat Tuka Rask tonight. To the second period we go. They love him in Boston, but nowhere else. Brad Marchand, 2-0 for the Bruins. But they really love him in Boston. Again, a power play giveaway, this time Quinn Hughes. And it's Charlie Coyle and Markstrom foils another Bruins shorthanded breakaway. And then he stops. backhand sauce. Jake DeBrusque, Jake DeBrusque with the a great glove hand save. One more goal for the Bruins to show you. They would get four here, but this Here's is David Krejci. No, you got to be stronger than that, Jake Bertanen. 4 nothing to Bruins beat the Canucks. Vancouver Giants are opening up a five-game homestand tonight. They're hosting Tri-City. Vancouver is coming off back-to-back wins against the Kamloops Blazers as they uh, climb out of a wild-card spot into the top three in the B.C. division. Oh, it was huge. I mean, from a confidence standpoint, massive. Uh, you know, Kamloops is an elite team. And, uh, you know, obviously getting getting a win here, I thought we deserved it. We played really well as a group. Uh, going into Kamloops under the conditions we went into, uh, spending seven hours on the bus, uh, not knowing if we were going to play or even get there, and, and, uh, and coming up with a big win in Kamloops uh, certainly uh, gives us a lot of confidence. The first year of the Vancouver Titans in the Overwatch League was an amazing success. Think of them like the Vegas Golden Knights were in their first year, an expansion team that went all the way to the finals. 
That's what the Titans did. They didn't win the championship, but they got to the finals. And now it's their second season coming up. And like most teams in big sports leagues, they have a training camp. Yes, even gamers have training camps to get them ready for the real games. This is what the preseason looks like for the Vancouver Titans of the Overwatch Esports League. Hours upon hours of gaming. And last year, this expansion team made it all the way to the Overwatch Grand Finals, which is gaming's version of the Super Bowl. For me, it was when we were at the Grand Finals in Philadelphia. You know, I've been to a lot of sporting events in my life, and, and that one still sticks in my head as one that uh, blows me away. It's just from you know, selling out with 14,000 people screaming at the top of their lungs. The entertainment was probably top-notch, probably, I'd say, top three of any sporting event I've ever been to. So after making it all the way to the Grand Finals last season, the Titans' goal this year is to win it all. Their game plan for success might surprise you, though, and it doesn't involve a keyboard or a mouse. The Titans are training like other elite athletes. They're in the gym, they're learning and developing better nutritional habits, basically taking their overall game to a whole new level. So Adam C Sports training performance is all about bringing a traditional sport model of athlete support to esports athletes. So we're bringing kind of all the best practices in traditional sport from kind of uh, sleeping, nutrition, physical activity, mental performance to an esports uh, athlete to help them perform when it matters. <laughs> the average esport athlete is training everywhere from 10 to 16 hours a day. They're true professionals. They they know they they know this can be important for their careers. It can ex extend their careers. Burnout is a big kind of issue in esports at the moment, and so being uh, more holistic around kind of lifestyle and health can, can really kind of extend their careers in a very significant way, as well as increase performance. The other new thing for the Titans and the one that excites them the most, come May, for the first time ever, they're going to be gaming in front of their own fans inside Rogers Arena. So when they play in the US, uh, a lot of fans from Vancouver uh, didn't get the chance to see them in person. But since we're in Vancouver, a lot of uh, fans from Vancouver, they're able to come and uh, watch us. So he's very, uh, very excited uh, for that, and they'll definitely repay them by playing well. Jay Janower, Global Sports. When there's a Pong League, I'm totally in it. Right. Totally in it. <laughs> The Vancouver International Boat Show and Global News Hour at 6 invite you to enter for a chance to win this family fishing boat. Today's code word is salmon. Enter online. Here's your snow report for tonight. Whistler Blackcomb picked up 2 centimeters of fresh snow. Grouse, 13. Cypress, 10. And Sasquatch, nothing new. Same for Manning Park. Revelstoke picked up 4. Fernie, nothing new. Kicking Horse, 2 centimeters. Big White, 4. Silver Star, 5. Sun Peaks, 5. Apex, 10. Mount Washington, 1. Nothing new for Whitewater or Red Mountain, but they'll get some in the next 24 hours. And Powder King is a winner at 18. Coming up on ET Canada, love life updates from Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande. Plus, it's Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus married and making mistakes in a new comedy drama. That's coming up at 7 right after the news hour. For now, it's back to you, Chris and Sophie. All right. Thank you, Cheryl. Okay. Uh, so this is cool. we got the Variety Show of Hearts Telethon coming up on Sunday. And this is a great example of how your donations can make a big difference. Yes. And you did a story on this young man. I did. It was so cool. <laughs> You'll do a double take. <laughs> As you can see, Jacob Bradenhoff is a basketball player. And even though he lost his left leg to cancer, 
his desire to play the game has never left. Love basketball. Hope to go into wheelchair basketball professionally later on in life. And because he's a basketball player, getting his own Harlem Globetrotters jersey. On behalf of the Harlem Globetrotters, man, being able to fight through adversity and be where you are today, we got a jersey for you. And then working out with a Globetrotter is huge. I was pretty excited to see him and meet him, and it was really cool that my friends could come too from the basketball team. Neat experience. I think that's really cool because he's just shooting out here with the guys and you know they obviously make him feel included just like a regular teammate which he absolutely is you know uh, Jacob you saw he's able to do all the tricks with us um, he's shooting with us Jacob's a cool kid Jacob had aggressive bone cancer in his leg so doctors removed the knee area and then brought up the rest of his leg so his ankle now essentially works as a knee and through variety Jacob's recovery has included private physio at home. It would really help if you donated because it helps families that are not as fortunate with their money or anything like that, that so that they can have proper physio and can help them learn how to walk again or anything like that. And it's helped Jacob, the newest honorary Globetrotter, to keep connected to his favorite game. Awesome. So cool. Mm -hmm. Good for him. And he'll be joining us. He and his family will be joining us on Sunday. Yes. Lots of other kids, too. So all day Sunday, we hope you'll join us. Mm -hmm. Forget the Oscars. Who cares? Oh, Forget the sunshine. Who cares? <laughs> That's right. We're going to be uh, very involved in raising money for variety. And there's mm -hmm. a look at that five-day. That's right. So we still have uh, three days of rainfall on the way before the sun makes an appearance. It looks like we could have a f um, not only Saturday, Sunday, but potentially into Monday and Tuesday also. So, yes, never mind the sunshine. Join us. <laughs> I'm watching variety on Sunday. After a full day on Saturday, you'll be tired of the sunshine. You don't want it anymore. Stay in on Sunday. Seriously, it'll be cold anyway. So Just whatever. open your curtains. You'll see it that way. That's right. Thanks. Thanks oh, very look. much for watching. Oh, look at that, will you? The clouds have dandruff. Have your shoulders. <laughs>